Does fortune favor the bold or does fortune favor the prepared? Do entrepreneurs ever truly get lucky or is work always the deciding factor? And if we create our own luck, how come some people seem to simply be luckier than others? You better start wearing your four-leaf clover, Tom. Mm, if it means I beat you to the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow, I'll do that any day, Ben. Let's go. Welcome, listeners, to Subject Matter. Hello, good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are in the world. Welcome to another episode of Subject Matter. This is episode 10. I am Ben Bradbury, joined by my amazing co-host, Tom Worcester. Tom, how has your first week back been? We've had a week of reflecting and planning in Amsterdam together. I want to know what it's been like when you've actually been getting back into the nitty gritty. Well, as we mentioned before, this is the year of the, not a. And so in the pursuit of having the year, uh, I've been working on implementing different habits, such as meditation and better organization in order to get my goals done. And since then, uh, I feel like I've been able to balance three times the workload and half the time and really striving to achieve that point of harmony where we've kind of identified that balance and harmony is its own superpower. How about you, Ben? That's awesome. It sounds like the lessons from Amsterdam are sticking. Well, for me, much in the same way that you're looking to get harmony and balance, I'm really doubling down on speed and execution. So ever since Amsterdam, I've been writing every single morning for at least an hour and a half. And I've got to tell you, it's massively improved my workload. Focusing down on those key kind of core competencies that I'm looking to build has been really powerful. Hmm. Seems like it's a pretty lucky trip we went on then, huh? Well, that's an excellent segue. Funny you should mention that because... Today's discussion is all about luck. It's fickle nature and where it comes from and how we can and can't create it. And we begin today's discussion with a man who history would never call lucky, undergoing one of the luckiest encounters the records have ever seen. Napoleon Bonaparte is remembered by history as one of the greatest military leaders of all time. Napoleon inherited an army quite unlike any other. When the European powers tried to interfere with France's new leadership, the people of France decided that every French man and woman would be mobilized into this new great military machine. This was the mighty army Napoleon inherited. Such was its power that he would later be quoted as saying, you cannot stop me, I spend 30,000 men a month. To paraphrase Joseph Stalin, one death is a tragedy, but 30,000 deaths in a month for Napoleon, that was a statistic. And this unrelenting force was the foundation for a military career that spanned 20 years. Napoleon would single-handedly lead the French through the Napoleonic Wars with victories from the Czech Republic to Egypt. Now, let's be clear. There was no doubt that Napoleon earned every bit of his fearsome reputation. And when he finally surrendered to the Sixth Coalition in March 1814, France was pitted against Russia, Prussia, Austria, Spain, Sweden, Great Britain, and Portugal all at once. You could say they went down with a hell of a fight. Napoleon's enemies had finally won. And you can bet that there were people who wanted to lock up the fearsome Frenchman and throw away the key. Which is why, after 20 years of military defeat at the hands of Napoleon, that's exactly what they did. On the 30th of May, 1814, Napoleon was exiled to Elba, a tiny island off the Tuscan coast of Italy. Napoleon wasn't just defeated, though. 
his enemies humiliated him. He was elected as Elba's sovereign king and was mockingly given a court formed of, among others, a cook, a wardrobe mistress, and an official pianist. For Napoleon, life couldn't get much worse. Well, I don't know. He could have been exiled to the UK, right, Ben? <laughs> I don't know. I think life's pretty good on this side of the pond, Tom. But I've got to tell you, something so ridiculous happened 300 days later to Napoleon that it sounds like it was scripted in a film. Because the tiny Italian island of Elba was surrounded by the cooperating British and French navies. Together, they made up the mightiest sea powers of their time. But on the 26th of February, 1815, that Goliath of a naval power would lose to its David. A small ship consisting of Napoleon's old guard and his Corsican battalion suspiciously broke formation, sailing past the encirclement straight to Elba, into the lion's den. When they docked, they found a figure waiting for them by the port who hurried onto the ship. A cannon fired to announce his departure, and then Napoleon Bonaparte, de defying all convention, sailed back towards the encirclement to certain doom. Now, at this point, if they wanted to, the British and French ships could have shredded Napoleon's ships to cinders. But somehow, amazingly, Napoleon's ship was able to slip past the encirclement completely undetected. Indeed, they were 10 kilometers from Elba before the Navy had any idea what had happened. But by then, it was too late. Napoleon reassembled his forces, marched to Paris, and began his second term on the French throne. Napoleon made it all the way to the French capital, a man in exile who had gone to war with Europe's most feared powers without a shot being fired against him. This was, Tom, quite possibly one of the luckiest and most daring escapes of any great leader in history. You want to talk about luck? That is my prime example. Yeah, but you say luck, but that's more in the category of dumb luck. It wasn't planned or engineered, and you're banking on a lack of attention from a battalion that was defending an island where they probably didn't even understand the concept of a potential Napoleon escape. So even the greatest people on the planet, a la Napoleon, can get lucky sometimes. But what happens when you're just getting started? What if you find yourself coming up with the biggest sports brand in the entire world? Because that's exactly what happened at a little company called Nike. The founder, Phil Knight, had been reselling Onitsuka Tiger shoes from Japan to get his company started, which he then masqueraded as an entity called Blue Ribbon. There he stood at the helm of a sports shoe empire that spanned the entire United States with one small problem. They didn't have a name. So Knight was toying with two names for weeks and weeks and weeks, Falcon and Dimension Six. Days and days of arguing with his team flew by, and they were no closer to that end goal of a name. Apparently, Dimension Six shoes just didn't have the ring they were looking for. Who knew? The day of the decision came, and Knight was wiped out. Shoes were still being imported in and flying off the shelves, but there was no name in sight. But then, right at the finish line, Phil Knight's right-hand man, Jeff Johnson, had a dream. Well, not that dream, MLK, but this dream. In Johnson's dream, he saw the Greek goddess of victory, Nike. Now, I think at this point, you kind of know how the story ends. How lucky, how serendipitous, Nike, in a dream. Oh, the story is great, right? 
It came up with Nike and the sports world changed forever and overnight success, right? But Ben, <laughs> you didn't really think I would call a company like Nike lucky, did you? Here's the real story of Nike. Sure, coming up with the name may have been lucky, but the fact is Phil Knight sweat and bled for his tiny company, nearly missing countless orders just to fulfill demand. He fought, struggled, and willed his way to the overwhelming success that Nike is today. He ate those sleepless nights. He tossed and turned, and he paid for decisions, often in blood. But the truth is, it was his willpower and putting himself in the arena that gave him the ability to conquer those demons in the first place. So he may have been lucky getting the contract from Onitsuka, but he was literally the only person in the United States who was at the time prepared to travel alone to the other side of the world to get into the room where there was even the slightest chance of it happening. That takes a lot of will and a lot of risk bearing to get into that room. And then carrying that forward on the spot to come up with a name of Blue Ribbon to masquerade as a company to get Suka to take him at 24 years old seriously and to pull that off and begin to bring Tiger Shoes into the United States? Incredible. Nike's growth isn't down to luck. It's down to something much deeper. And what that is, is a refusal to give up, a refusal to give up market share to their competitors in the United States, a refusal to give up on their underlying customer and willing, being willing to double down on the research behind the shoe. What people don't know is that Nike was an innovator in the shoe space. They weren't just a reseller of shoes. Bill Bowerman took a waffle iron to start hacking together patterns for the soles of shoes and then gave runners better traction and then better mile time and better results. So it's no surprise that they had this miraculous ability to attract the most lucrative athlete brand deals when you realize that they put the athlete performance first, and then they supported that with a culture of innovation along the way. But that comes from pure willpower, right? They said, this is the way we're going to innovate. They turned innovation into a V of the brand rather than an A. And for the name, Knight was sleepless for weeks trying to settle on something he loved. He didn't even like the name Nike at first. But at the end of the day, Nike is in every major sports store in the world. So you call it luck, Ben? I call that resourcefulness. Bravo, Tom, and trust you to waffle on about a waffle iron. But I've got a better story, because Nike may not be there without meticulous planning. But do you know what else wouldn't have happened, Tom? Napoleon's escape, and not for the reasons you're thinking. You see, dear listener, it's time to peel back another layer to this legendary escapade. When Napoleon returned to Paris, the people's joy at his return may have been there like it was during his rule, but little else was. Napoleon's relentless military efforts had bankrupted his beloved country, and France's resources were all but spent. Even with all the charisma in Europe, there was virtually nothing Napoleon could do about this damning fact. And this, too, was not down to luck. You see, Napoleon's many enemies were naturally furious with his escape. The powers of the Congress of Vienna declared him an outlaw, and a month after his escape, the Seventh Coalition of Austria, Prussia, Russia, and the United Kingdom bound themselves to put 150,000 men into the field to end his rule. And at the Battle of Waterloo, that's exactly what happened. Plagued by long-term illness and a crippled army, Napoleon was finally crushed once and for all. And when the Allies got their hands on him again, 
they were not so kind as they were at Elba. There was no sovereignty over this island in Elba. There was no pleasant Italian sunshine as there was in Elba. Napoleon was exiled to the barren wasteland of St. Helena off the coast of West Africa, where he would live out the rest of his days. Now, Napoleon's enemies spanned far and wide, but some were closer to home than you might think. And this is where our subject matter discussion gets interesting, listener. Because up until now, you've thought Napoleon's daring escape from Elba was his stars aligning, a feat of supreme dumb luck. But what if I told you that Napoleon, the great commander, was a puppet? What if I told you that someone else altogether was pulling his strings? That's because Napoleon's escape from Elba was not lucky. It was the culmination of a conspiracy hatched at the highest level. When the Sixth Coalition defeated Napoleon, as you know, they sent him to Elba in Italy. And all were in agreement except one man. Napoleon's former minister himself, Charles-Marie de talleyrand Perigord, or Talleyrand. And this man had long deemed Napoleon's ruthless ambition an anarchic antidote to Europe's fragile stability. So he voted to send Napoleon away somewhere far more remote. But when the Allies refused to listen, Talleyrand didn't speak up and show his hand, he bided his time. And this is where we see the relationship with luck start to unfold, listener. Talleyrand knew that France didn't have the resources to survive more than a few months with Napoleon at the helm. And he also knew the great leader's ego wouldn't be able to resist the trap he had set. And so Napoleon walked right into Talleyrand's waiting hands. His escape was really planned all along. And when he snuck past the naval encirclement, the English watched him with their spyglasses, knowing that he was jumping out of the frying pan and into the fire. Talleyrand saw Napoleon's ambition in Europe as a ticking stick of dynamite resting on a fragile china plate. He knew he couldn't let this man explode into power again. So Napoleon's escape didn't just sound like it was scripted. It actually was scripted. Masterminded by Napoleon's right-hand man turned nemesis. So Tom, you want to come to me and talk about dumb luck? I'd encourage you to pull back the curtain. Being prepared, crafting the strategy, and setting the trap allows you to pull off more miraculous feats than any pot of gold ever could. Sure, Ben. Napoleon was a pawn in a much bigger game. But I'm going to push back on you on the idea that we always create our own luck. That ignores what you do and don't control in the world. If you think that your life's destiny is always in your hand, you'll almost always find yourself very disappointed. Let's take the sorrowful story of David Blair. He was a British merchant seaman in the early 20th century who found himself with the opportunity to test out a state-of-the-art ship. He sailed with this ship from its construction and all the way to America to prepare for its maiden voyage. However, a decision would be made that arguably changed the course of history. Blair's company, the White Star Line, had one of its other flagships in for repair, the RMS Olympic, and its chief's officer, Henry Wilde, was deemed to take over this brand new ship. Blair found himself demoted from the command roster and taken off this state-of-the-art ship. So Ben, if you think that over-preparedness can help you create your own luck, then the sheer amount of bad luck that happens next might just change your mind. 
You see, the ship in question was none other than the Titanic, and we all know how this story goes. But a big reason why the Titanic hit the iceberg was that the lookouts were ill-equipped. They didn't have binoculars. The amount that they could actually see was hugely reduced by the fact that they didn't have the proper equipment of their job. One of the lookouts, Frederick Fleet, was later asked by an inquiry whether or not they would have seen the iceberg from farther away had they had the equipment. He replied that he would have seen it mm, a bit sooner. When asked how much sooner, he responded, well, enough to get out of the damn way. And while the lookouts didn't have binoculars, it kind of begs the question of why the hell not? Our disappointed desperado, David Blair, is the cause. When Blair had left the ship after being reassigned, he had unknowingly left the key to the crow's nest locker in his pocket. So when the lookouts started their journey, they were told they'd be doing the Titanic's maiden voyage, basically blind. One forgotten key, one blind voyage. One chance piece of forgetfulness led to the collapse of the greatest ship the world had ever seen at the time. That is what I would call bad luck, Ben. And you think you can ever truly escape it? Then I advise you to think again. Oh, I don't think I can escape bad luck, Tom. Ten episodes into subject matter and I'm stuck here with you. I've well and truly <laughs> made my bad memory. <laughs> and I take your point. Bad luck can lead to misery and misfortune, yes. But luck isn't always this force that's acting for bad or for good, as you seem to think it is. Luck is an essential part of life, and sometimes its impact is totally harmless. Let's take the national horse race that happens every year in my hometown, the Epsom Derby. Shout out Epsom. It's watched by millions every year, and the Derby is a name ingrained into the minds of anyone from Epsom. But the name of that prestigious race was decided at the toss of a coin. At his party in 1779, the Earl of Derby faced off against one of his guests, Sir Charles Bunbury, to decide the name of their new race. Derby won the toss and so changed the course of history. But if we're being honest, it's a name. It's harmless. It's neither for better nor for worse. And that's my point, Tom. Luck will always be there. Sometimes it's better to accept that fact and focus on what's in front of us instead. Yeah, but now we're kind of splitting hairs between luck and random chance, but, you know, we'll save that for another episode. So, Ben, if everyone's focusing on what's in front of them, then I would just call that life. But it's the moment that life doesn't go to plan, doesn't go to that random chance, where luck extends out in front of us, inviting us to seize it with both hands. That's called hedging your bets and hedging those in the right direction. And that comes from relentless execution. Let's look at TBH, a pro-consumer-focused polling app that was acquired last year by Facebook for an estimated $100 million. Now, you may think that TBH founders have hit the jackpot. How lucky, right? But as we've learned, those results are the result of picking themselves up following failure after failure. You see, TBH might have only taken two weeks to actually build but the team had to fail for seven years first. TBH's co-creator, Nikita Beer, started their parent company, Midnight Labs, back in 2010. They tried an impressive array of apps, one for personal finance, a work time tracker, a personality test. And do you know which one worked, which gave them the big dream exit they were looking for? None of them. In fact, the team created as many as 15 products that never went anywhere. 
So, Tom, if you've created two products so far, I guess you've only got 13 more failures in front of you, buddy. Uh, actually, that'll be 14 because this one's going to hit, but you know. <laughs> Touche. So, 15 failures for TBH, 14 for me, 15 for you, is enough to knock most people down for good. But Midnight Labs, they got up again. With just 60 days of cash left from their investors, they decided to build something based around positivity and they saw was missing from other anonymous apps like Yikyak. TBH was born, and then it promptly blew up. When they introduced it to their first school in Georgia, 40% of the school downloaded it on the first day. Talk about virality. The rest, as they say, is history. And, you know, a $100 million exit. But it was a seemingly endless amount of attempts that Midnight Labs took to create something sticky that was totally necessary for the eventual lucky strike that TBH turned out to be. Their story is proof that we can not expect to get it right on the first time, or even the 12th time, or the 15th. So yes, you create your own luck. But luck comes first from the building of proper context that sometimes can only come from learning the hard way. And when you're finally lucky, you have to be ready to seize the moment. It's being ready for your day to be, as Theodore Roosevelt once fittingly said, to be the man in the arena. So if luck only comes with enough preparation, then beyond wearing four-leaf clovers, how can you make yourself luckier, listener? Well, this episode of Subject Matter has shown us that we encounter different kinds of luck every day. So let's break them down. First up is plain and simple dumb luck. This luck is unique because, as we've seen, there is literally nothing you can do to improve your odds with it. Dumb luck is always there in our lives. And whether it's winning a coin toss or forgetting a fateful key, it will always be in your life for better or for worse. The next two kinds of luck are far more interesting for you, dear listener, because these are factors we actually have in our control. The second kind of luck is circumstantial. These are the places and situations you choose to be in where you meet a client, mentor, or friend who has a profound impact on your life. This is one of the people, not just a person. But note the first part of that sentence, the situations you choose to be in. This is exactly the luck Phil Knight used to get his first company, Blue Ribbon, off the ground. He was only able to get on Onitsuka to agree to sell him their Tiger shoes to resell in the United States by pushing his circumstantial luck to its limits and actually get in a room with Onitsuka in Japan on home turf. Likewise, you, listener, can improve your luck the same way. Let's suppose you want to be a great marketer. Then you need to find the other great marketers. Get to the conferences where they're speaking. Find out what events they go to. Once you're in a room with other great people, you'll be amazed at how much serendipity comes your way. Oh, so that's why you're saying Amsterdam is so serendipitous. What a compliment, Ben. Thank you. <laughs> you're welcome, Tom. And that kind of luck, if we're talking about hanging out with the people in a new city or people who are going to push you forward, that kind of luck is external. That's circumstantial luck. And if that's external, then our final type of luck is internal. And this is constitutional luck. And this is quite simply, not as complicated as it sounds, it's how our basic makeup informs how we make decisions. So let's think about it. A 50-year-old is going to make decisions very differently to a 14-year-old. 
And a teenager from Indonesia will have very different views on what matters to them to a teenager in Norway. To use this luck positively requires a level of self-awareness. People who attended the same school or university as you will constitutionally be more naturally disposed to help you out. And it's the same for your nationality, your age, your gender, or your career. But beyond that, think about the biases you have yourself. Our constitution is slightly different, and that means we all see the world slightly differently. And we are not these rational creatures we so often think of ourselves as. So take comfort in that fact. Embrace that. Your constitution will influence your decisions. And if you can seek to understand those underlying biases, you'll be able to take a more active role in decisions that you might otherwise think are left up to luck. Whether it's circumstantial or constitutional luck, being prepared for luck is the ingredient that decides whether luck is working for you or against you. These overnight success stories that we hear are almost never true. Just because you decided to pay attention at one point in time doesn't mean that the person, company, or project stopped working in the interim. I would encourage you, listener, to think about luck in the form of reps. Repetitions, right? Just like you need to do repeated repetitions to build a muscle, you need to do the reps in business to build up your luck, to build up your context. I had to do the reps in my first project, Loopy Laces, in order to get the context I needed to build Lunchbox, which I'm working on now. In the first year, we did about $35,000 in sales. In the last month, Lunchbox did the same amount and just cruised through its Kickstarter goal. We're now over 125% funded, but without the lessons of Leapy Laces and without an inferior business behind it, I wouldn't have gotten there. So being prepared doesn't just make you more lucky. It directly creates your luck. So if that means you're more likely to win, and luck is related to context, then there's really nothing lucky about that after all, is there, Ben? I'll hand it to you, Tom. We definitely create our own luck, and context that we have informs the ability to create more of it. But to close, I'd like to show you how luck that you can create may well even save your own life. Because on October 14th, 1912, our man in the arena, Theodore Roosevelt, was preparing to deliver a campaign speech. And he folded his 50-page manuscript, a weighty wad of papers, in half, slipping it into the breast pocket of his army overcoat. Now, Roosevelt was heading to a nearby auditorium to deliver his speech and stopped to wave at the waiting crowd, when suddenly a man shot him point-blank in the chest with a Colt 38 revolver. Now, a shot of that force should have killed him. But do you know what saved Theodore Roosevelt's life? Not his luck but his preparation. His chest was protected by the thick wad of speech papers preventing the bullets from entering his lung, thus saving his life. Roosevelt then promptly went on to deliver his speech anyway. And that story goes to show that luck will always play a force in our lives, listeners. And in the end, to some extent, true, we create our own life. But the key is to understand where your control over luck ends and where the rest of your life begins. But as always, listener, where you choose to draw the line or where you decide to place the papers to stop that bullet is up to you.
So thank you all for listening to this episode of Subject Matter. And if you have enjoyed what you've heard from Tom and I and you have found it useful, we would love if you could go and subscribe either on iTunes or follow us on Spotify and leave us a rating. It really does help us get seen in the algorithm. And we're starting to really enjoy these episodes and get some momentum. So we would love if you guys could support us. So thank you very much for listening to this episode. And we will be back with episode 11 of Subject Matter next week.